You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Hello, everyone. And I do mean everyone. I say that because often when people hear beauty industry, which is our topic for today, they think, oh, it's going to be all about products for women. So to our male listeners, I want to say to you, that is not true. Beauty is for everyone. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing some important trends in the beauty industry. And one of those trends is the growth in unisex products and men's products. So stick with us. But before I introduce our guests today, let's first define what we mean when we say the beauty industry. What does that encompass? Well, it means skincare, color cosmetics, hair care, fragrances, and personal care. It's probably no surprise to most people that the beauty industry had a very challenging year. Global retail sales fell by 15% in 2020, and color cosmetics had an even steeper drop of 33%. But the beauty industry has been resilient in the past, and our experts are predicting a return to growth in 2022. So let's meet our two beauty experts and hear more about their outlook for the industry. I'll start with Sophie Marchessou. Sophie is a partner based in McKinsey's Paris office. She's been with McKinsey for over 12 years, and for about eight of those years, she lived in New Jersey. She moved back to Paris in late 2019. Uh, And Sophie now leads McKinsey's work with beauty companies globally. Thanks for joining us today, Sophie. It's great to be on the podcast. Thank you for having us. And Emma Spagnola is a McKinsey partner who currently lives in New Jersey. Emma leads our work in the beauty industry in North America. She started her career at U.S.-based retailers Abercrombie & Fitch and Bloomingdale's, and she joined McKinsey about six years ago. Glad to have you here, Emma. Super happy to be here as well, Monica. Thanks. So let's start with a very simple question. How have your own beauty routines changed this past year and a half? Mine has actually followed what I think we've seen in in global trends. Um, And so if I go through the different categories, I would say my makeup consumption has definitely decreased. I think part of it was just not being able to go try fun things in stores, but also having just fewer occasions to wear makeup. Definitely increased, uh, on the other hand, skincare and, and hair care products, as well as, as body care, um, as well as what we call DIY products. So doing your getting your nails done in a salon or getting your hair cut or, or pamper just wasn't an option. So I've increased uh, spend, on, spend on those categories. But I would say my spend is quickly shifting back now to what was, I would say, my pre-pandemic normal. I went um, absolutely crazy with color cosmetics because it was an outlet and something exciting for me in the pandemic. So even though I had to buy it online, I was trying new things and experimenting at home. I think where I did follow the trends, though, were I absolutely created a skincare and a hair care routine for myself uh, that I've never had before in the past. So for instance, if before... I was purely color cosmetics, hardly even a moisturizer. Now I definitely have a serum and a moisturizer and a sunscreen and then a fuller cover-up, I would say, on top of that before I start my my makeup base. So um, I think I'm both bucking and following the trends, but I'm probably the brands and retailers, you know, favorite customer right now. 
And if this were a different kind of show, I would ask you all of the brands of everything yeah. you just <laughs> mentioned. But this is not that kind of show. So we're going to talk a little bit about the business side of things. But first, well, I'm curious to hear your predictions about post-pandemic beauty, right? So some experts are predicting this roaring 20s, right? People spending a lot of money again and, and sort of peacocking. Um, so like a beauty boom, a rapid recovery in color cosmetics based on both the patterns that have played out in China, but also just a sense that people want to get back to dressing up and putting makeup on and being out and about again. Is that what you're foreseeing? Are you foreseeing a beauty boom? I personally am. In the midst of the pandemic, we actually conducted consumer research, specifically in color cosmetics. And what we found was that if you left it vague and said something to the effect of, you know, when the pandemic ends, how much do you expect to spend on cosmetics versus what you're spending now? There, you could see a significant rebound. And I think we're actually starting to see it in fragrance of all places. Um, I think Q1 fragrance sales were astronomical, both for brands and for retailers, which gives me hope that color cosmetics will be quick to follow afterwards. I think just to add a couple of things, you spoke about the industry declining by 15%, which of course was dramatic for a lot of players. But if you put that in perspective and compare it to other consumer categories, it's actually fared a lot better. I also believe that the outlook is a bit different by region. So I think we're pretty bullish about the next few years being much more exciting for, for color cosmetics. But I think we've seen it recover super fast in China already back in 2020, towards the end of 2020. Um, seeing a fast acceleration in, in the US as things are getting back to normal. But I think we're a little bit more pessimistic about how long it's going to take for Europe to get back to normal and also what the growth rates will be. Um, I think some of it is also just a reflection of the trends in the market pre, pre-pandemic. I think it's a bit of a differentiated picture by, by geography. Yeah. And of course, one of the biggest trends of the pandemic era across geographies is this shift to digital, right? And e-commerce. Beauty retailers, you know, had to get creative because like, how do you sell lipstick or perfume if your stores are closed? So what are your favorite examples of how retailers have been using uh, e-commerce and more broadly technology during the pandemic? What are some of the sort of the clever and effective ways that they've been able to persuade consumers to buy online? Everyone has had to experiment. So I think everyone has had its own tactics. Um, I think for, especially for higher end brands, smart ways to use beauty consultants or advisors to be part of the transition towards online and, and basically go into social selling meaning you're directly buying from someone who's representing the brand, um, but not going through the traditional e-commerce or, or store channel. I think the other digital element that I have found really exciting is the use of personalization and you know quiz-type diagnostics. I think it's a fun way to engage the consumer and to create a product for them that they feel like is uniquely theirs. In some cases, it's more like there are six formulas and you take a quiz and it pops out the best formula for you. There are other cases where it truly is a very personalized product. Um, And this is a trend that we're seeing, you know, it's obviously been successful in marketing for years now, but starting to see that, you know, consumer generation play a real role in, in driving retailers' success, I think is something we'll see continue going forward. And I think there's a a third type of, of personalization, which I think is pretty common now in beauty, which is personalized packaging. So for example, you'll get your initials or, or some sort of personalized 
um, touch on your product, which makes it feel more more authentic and and more special to your to your needs. But as soon as you go into customized formulation or truly customized packaging, it's very difficult to make it a cost-effective offering. And so, especially for large brands, it's all about do you try to offer a bit of customization through your entire product line, or do you have a subset of your offering that's that's a customized offering, which I think is more in the direction that a lot of, of uh, brands are, are going. But I think it is a it is a, a challenge that's definitely worth investing in in for the next few years. Sophie, you talked about social selling. You know, so social selling and live stream selling yeah. are huge in China and other Asian markets, but they haven't quite taken off in, in North America and Europe. Is it coming? And what will be the tipping point? And then what should beauty players be doing right now in that space, if anything? My guess would be that it is probably going to be um, a pretty substantial um, channel and way of way of selling because it goes back to this desire for a personal recommendation, a personal touch and interaction, which I think consumers are increasingly favoring. But I think it will only um, go to the tipping point to your question when you have platforms, for example, in the US that support it in a large way, like you have in China and today you don't. So you could imagine that some of the platforms that you have in China could be replicated and um, in the US or TikTok, for example, could become an interesting channel for that. I have a pretty bullish take on this. Right now we sit here in the US and we look at it and to Sophie's point, exactly. You know, we don't see how it could be as viable or as big as all of the other channels that we have. But I really believe that the value that we see coming out of it in China is going to excite all of those entrepreneurs who are looking to either expand their current offerings from China to the US or the entrepreneurs in the US to find a way to create that next channel. And then I think it's absolutely gonna take off. Consumers today want that live interaction. They want to be engaged. They want the authenticity and the credibility that these you know, KOLs in China or influencers in the US bring to the product. And I think also some people don't like the in-store actual interaction. I think this speaks to both people who are, you know, extroverts who, you know, are looking for somebody to be talking to them, but also the people who are introverts, those people who don't love to talk to a beauty consultant when they're in a store. And so I think it actually reaches out to a large group of consumers who are interested in beauty. That's fascinating. And, you know, you do expect some stickiness in e-commerce and, and digital channels, right? I think you've said that, you know, digital channels will gain more than 15 percentage points of share globally, meaning some of the dollars that consumers used to spend on beauty products in stores, whether that's department stores or drug stores, will instead be spent on digital channels. And that is a significant channel shift. Um, and beauty players, to some extent, have been preparing for this shift, right? They've been building their e-commerce capabilities, digital capabilities, and so on. But in your experience, are there things that companies should be doing that they're still not doing on the digital front, whether that's, you know, hiring different kinds of talent or, I don't know, some other things? I think the biggest thing that I see that I would advise all of my beauty retailers to focus on is capturing and leveraging data and customer relation management. I think what the pandemic did is it forced people online. So they were naturally getting all of this additional digital traffic that in the past they wouldn't have gotten. Now it's up to them to make sure that they leverage that. And I think second to that, they have to create, for those that have a store footprint, 
a store experience that complements and matches that digital experience. Because now all of those consumers who were forced to them digitally will now have the ability to go back into store. And you want to make sure that that remains a seamless environment because we've known for years now that the omni-channel consumer who is shopping both digitally and in store has a much higher lifetime value than anybody who's shopping any single channel. The omni-channel capabilities, I think defining what as a retailer or beauty brand you want to stand for and what consumer experience you want to provide and then stick to it. But then the answer doesn't need to be the same for everyone. There are, depending on your customer target, some features that might be more or less relevant. So I don't think it's about going after the gimmicky things and just you know, technology enhancements in the, in the store just for the sake of it. But figuring out in the consumer journey, what are potential pain points? And how do you then say those three things I'm going to prioritize? And that's going to be how I deliver this omni-channel experience. And making sure you trickle that down through the organization so that not just your digital team, but also your store team is aware of the experience you want to provide and explain why it matters. I think that makes a big difference. I think the mistake a lot of them made is, a lot of them have made is being a little bit unclear on what they prioritize, especially when it comes to omni-channel features and experiences, but also not communicating it broadly enough in the organization. And so you almost have a two-speed organization and the two don't work hand-in-hand well enough together. That's interesting. And, you know, in beauty, as in other categories, right, the future of retail, as you say, is omni-channel and the role of the store is going to change. It's going to be more about curation, personalization, experience, right, rather than just transaction. What are the most exciting examples that come to mind when you think about the possibilities for brick and mortar beauty retailers? Or are there any beauty retailers that are doing or experimenting with amazing things in stores right now? One of the retailers that I've seen doing this really well that I've been really excited about lately um, actually comes from the department store channel. And that's interesting to me because I think the department store channel is one that over the past couple of years we've thought, you know, has not been performing as well. I mean, it has not been performing as well in the numbers, but also we felt as though the decisions being made there may not have been as optimal as in some of our open cell specialty channels. What I'm seeing from this particular retailer, however, is that they have really made an effort to create an engaging store experience that both brings in the consumer, educates them, provides them with opportunity to shop unencumbered, but then also has the beauty consultants available if they need help. This store footprint actually allows people to come in, test product, look at product, smell product, and do it kind of, you know, in their own area. So they have a beauty bar set up. They have a huge floor. So you can try all different types of products, everything from color cosmetics to skincare to hair care to personal care. Um, And they've done a very nice job of actually staying on top of the trends. They have um, a large portion dedicated actually to home fragrance, which was huge during the pandemic. And now they've started to create these almost it's almost gamifying the experience because you can come in and test and try all different personal fragrances. So, you know, this has been something truly exciting for me because I think it's reopening up department stores to creating that kind of exciting experience that goes beyond just stocking products and stuff for people to transact on. One interesting retailer is AromaZone, which is a French-based retailer. So to anyone outside of France now listening to the podcast, it might not be um, a concept or retail you're familiar with, but it is the first DIY concept that I've seen that is 
truly engaging and fun. And I think most importantly is able to speak to very different customer segments all in one store format and store layout. So if you are a diehard DIY customer and you know how to make and, and manufacture your, your skincare and you know what type of ingredients you need, then you can very quickly navigate towards the essential oil ad aisle and then the container aisle, et cetera, and get everything you need. If you are a, a newer person to DIY, you have those very conveniently labeled basically areas where you have um, a lot of explanation on everything you need. It's all in one stack. You could just pick the products, et cetera. And so I think it's a very interesting example of um, a, a retailer that's innovated on something that speaks to a lot of customers now, like do-it-yourself, sustainable products. This is something that since we started doing our generational research in 2016, we've been seeing a simmering belief and willingness to pay for more sustainable products. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of brands and retailers start to take action in one of two ways. The first way is to actually change how they do things and how they package things in order to be more sustainable and more environmentally friendly. The other way is to actually come up with different initiatives that counteract some of the quote unquote harm that they may be doing to the environment. So this way they have kind of a net zero impact because they're also driving sustainability initiatives in other ways. And I think early on, they were able to pick and choose a little bit I'm gonna, am I going to commit to climate change and carbon reduction, for example, or will I focus more on the formulation and the type of ingredients I use or recyclable or re reusable packaging? Now, I think it's a little bit too late to pick and choose. I think if you're a large group or a large brand, you have to play in all of those areas. I think the trick, which we don't see companies do enough of yet, is to commit all the way down to the organization and make that part of people's evaluation metrics. Because when your performance bonus is tied to very specific metrics related to sustainability, it changes the picture completely. And then all of a sudden, it really truly becomes a, a corporate-wide priority. Right. Yeah. So sustainable products is one growth area. Another seems to be what I mentioned earlier, which is unisex products and men's products, right? And in fact, I've noticed that some of the biggest influencers in beauty right now are, are men. What are the implications for beauty products manufacturers and beauty retailers who have traditionally catered almost exclusively to women? I think this speaks to a broader desire of beauty brands to be inclusive. And I think gender is part of that, but it's not the only element. I think ethnicity is not is another, especially in the US, for example, another huge consideration. Interestingly, when we look at the size of the men's beauty market, it is not actually outgrowing the, the overall beauty market. So it doesn't look like there is a huge tipping or there's been a huge tipping point and that men's products are, are completely outgrowing um, women's products. But I do think it's it's an important consideration for, for companies to decide whether they want to speak to that market. And then what's the best way? Is it just having inclusive imagery, which I think for some brands and products actually work, works, or um, is it having a, a, a special dedicated line? I think the other thing too is that, you know, the way that we track these brands is going, if we want to be able to truly track men's products versus women's products, is going to have to be slightly updated, right? Because I think that one thing that I have seen proliferating itself is 
the idea of having a men's line that specifically targets cons male consumers and that, you know, looks different, feels different from women's. But at the end of the day, you know, it's still a body lotion or it's still a facial cleanser. Brands absolutely have to be talking to specific consumers. You can no longer just kind of push your brand mes messaging and, you know, if you spend the most, you're going to be the winner. It's about those who really speak to a specific consumer base and to Sophie's earlier point, answer the questions that that consumer has. Those are the ones who are going to be successful, whether or not you are, you know, I think all, all spectrums of inclusivity to Sophie's point are, are super important, whether it's men or other ethnicities or even older consumers who are looking for, you know, younger brands and still feel young. So we can talk for hours, but let's close with this question. If the CEO of a beauty company comes to you and says, you know, it's been a tough year. I have too many things on my agenda. There is too much to think about. I want you to tell me the one thing I need to focus on in 2021 and 2022. What would you say to that CEO? Re-energize your organization and your people. In the end, like I'm a firm believer that you only achieve change by relying on your colleagues and a team. You have to have a team that works together, that's cross-functional, and that's sort of working towards a North Star together. I would just advise everybody to think about what is the next leapfrog step in digital and in e-commerce that makes you uncomfortable, that you think could never happen in a million years? Think about that and really pressure test whether that reaction is, is the right one or whether or not this is something that you should be the distinctive leader in. Because I think that type of thinking is what helps the organizations reach that North Star that Sophie's talking about. Thanks so much, Emma and Sophie. This has been such a fun conversation. To all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Please visit mckinsey.com for more on the beauty industry. Until next time, I'm Monica Toriello.